Secretly listening in on other sports teams has had a long history in a variety of sports. Naturally, the New England Patriots have repeatedly been accused of spying of one sort or another. Sports Illustrated reported that at least five teams have swept their hotels, locker rooms, or coaches' booths in New England to check for listening devices. Baseball has a much longer history of trying to tap into the communication of the opposing team. It's called sign stealing, and there was quite a scandal surrounding the Houston Astros a few years ago. But the tradition dates back as far as 1899. The Phillies used a backup catcher named Morgan Murphy out in an observatory beyond the center field wall. He would steal signs with binoculars, and then he rigged an underground wire from his perch all the way to the third base coaching box, where the coach kept his foot above a junction box that would signal the pitch by buzzing once or twice. I mean, you gotta give it to him for ingenuity. Now they're using Apple watches. This guy dug a trench and ran copper wire. Let's give it to him. Now, in our passage tonight, we get an interesting glimpse into the private communication between two players on what we would call the other team. We have Festus, the new governor of Judea, and King Agrippa. They're going to receive a powerful presentation of the gospel from the foremost missionary of the gospel. But first, we get a look behind closed doors to see some of their discussion and their mindset leading up to Paul's message. Isn't it interesting that we've had no windows into Paul's life for two years in Caesarea, none of his meetings, none of his happenings? There's nothing. Luke skips over all of it. And yet now we're able to sit at the table with rulers and kings and hear them talk to one another. Why would the Lord preserve this somewhat incidental conversation for us for generations? When sports teams listen in on the other guys, it's so that they can gain some sort of dominance over their opponents, right? Not so with the Lord. His desire isn't to beat his opponents, but to win them for himself. And that's still his desire for the lost in our world today. And it can be helpful for us to examine their mindset as it's revealed on the pages of Scripture. We'll find that there's a wide spectrum of attitudes when it comes to the people we're sent to share the gospel with. I'm sure you've account encountered quite a wide spectrum, whether it's family members, friends, neighbors, strangers, coworkers. There's a wide spectrum of attitudes and opinions. Having some insider information about the way unbelievers think can help us to be ready and to stay warm-hearted toward those God loves so much. Look at verse 13. It says, Several days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and paid a courtesy call on Festus. King Agrippa here is Herod Agrippa II. His dad was the one who had the Apostle James killed and was struck dead by God in Acts chapter 12. Has that awesome song written about him. The worms go in, the worms go out into the stomach and out the mouth, right? Was that Donut Man or was that just like a Sunday school thing? Does anybody know? No? All right. This Herod Agrippa that we're reading about, his great uncle was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. His great-grandfather was the Herod the Great who slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem, quite a family. He had been appointed by the emperor, and he would need to keep friendly relations with as many Roman officials as he could, hence this protocol meeting of coming and giving honor to Festus. You see, he may have been a king, but the governor was the one in charge. 
And he was only a king because the emperor let him have that title and have jurisdiction over some regions there uh, in the area. Now, Bernice is mentioned too. She was Agrippa's sister and historians say his mistress, Gross. Now, she had been married to her own uncle before this, Gross again. And she would have a string of relationships with lots of powerful men, kings and rulers, including she would later have a relationship with the future Roman emperor Titus. And when he finally became emperor, he would have to put her away because the Roman uh, populace weren't into him uh, being with her. So right off the bat, we can sort of pause and evaluate what we know about these people that Paul is going to be evangelizing. And one thing we could say about them is that they have a lot going on. Uh, They've got all these pressures and problems, both personal and professional, Uh, many that they've brought on themselves, but many that are just sort of part of the job. Outwardly, they may have the trappings of wealth and influence, but their lives are an absolute mess. And each of them have these different fears and failures and struggles that they keep trying to put off, keep trying to avoid, keep trying to scheme their way out of, and yet these things just keep dogging them as individuals. Verse 14 says, Since they were staying there for several days, Festus presented Paul's case to the king, saying, There's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews presented their case and asked that he be condemned. So we talked about this a little bit last time we were in Acts. Festus had a problem. When he sends Paul to Nero, which he is going to do now that Paul has appealed to be tried by the Caesar, when Festus sends him as the guy whose jurisdiction Paul was in, he has to send an official report to detail the case and to present charges against this criminal. And he'll admit later in our passage that he has nothing to write. He doesn't know what to say. And that's not a good position for a Roman ruler to be in when you're sending someone to the emperor. While Agrippa was by no means a religious man, he was an expert in Jewish affairs and culture. And so he would be a very helpful resource for Festus in this particular issue. Not to mention he had a family history with Nero. Uh, They had kind of grown up together. Their dads were friendly. I mean, so they were friendly. And so, man, Festus is kind of getting getting like a a designated hitter here, right? He's he's in a real pickle and doesn't know what he's going to send in this report. Caesar Nero isn't gone mad yet as far as historians are concerned, but he's not the kind of guy you want to, uh, you don't want to waste Caesar Nero's time, right? Even if he's not insane. And so now Agrippa comes to town and Festus, maybe he's going to get bailed out here. And so Uh, If you had to send this sketchy case to the emperor, why not get some help from a guy like this? And Agrippa, for his part, would be happy to do the new governor a favor. These guys, as we've seen before, they were living in constant fear that they were going to be recalled to the emperor or that they were going to be overthrown or that there was going to be unrest. And there's all this shuffling going around all the time. And we see that throughout the gospels and throughout the book of Acts and even in secular history, there is all this change, all this upheaval all the time. So Agrippa, he's only where he's at because uh, the Caesar Nero is willing to let him be there. And so the more favor he can curry with different Roman officials in the region, the better. Now we look there and it says that the chief priests and the elders of the Jews, they had presented their case and asked that Paul be condemned. It's such a sad testimony 
that the Jewish religious leader's greatest wish in this section is that Paul would be condemned to death. I mean, that was the whole point. We would say, using like our language, that was the whole point of their ministry. That was the whole point of their religious life was, can we get this guy killed? Can we get this guy condemned? We'll assassinate him if we can. That didn't work. Well, let's get the Roman government to kill him. They're lobbying, they're scheming, they're planning, they're working, they're hiring lawyers to try to get him you know, convicted and all this kind of stuff. What a sad testimony that that was the bent and the focus of their whole religious life at this point in the book of Acts was to get this guy condemned to death. What a terrible legacy. And there's a devotional thought for us here. Condemnation isn't our job as God's people. Now, yes, we are to tell the truth that sin is condemned by God, but the job is for us to go and tell the world that there is escape from our guilt through the blood of Jesus. Even when it comes to hard-hearted, despicable people like those on display here. These people are gross that we're talking about tonight. Festus and Agrippa and Bernice, they're doing weird stuff. They don't care about the Lord. They don't care about spiritual things. They are living gross, despicable lives. And what are we going to see throughout this whole process? We're going to see God reaching out to them. We're going to see God going to considerable lengths to send a messenger of the good news of Jesus Christ to them with the hopes that they would turn from their sin and receive salvation and be transformed and be made new creations through the blood of Christ. And so even when it comes to hard-hearted people, despicable people, the goal is rescue and redemption. That's our goal. That's our function. Uh, the, the, the image that we've been bringing up a few times in these studies is that, you know, we, we sing in, in Sunday school the song, I'm in the Lord's army, right? And so we need to think about that, but as members of, of the Lord's service and the members of the Lord's kingdom, we're not door gunners in a helicopter mowing down God's enemies. We're rescue divers that are sent to go and rescue people and help save them out of the guilt of their sin. And so the, the goal is that people would be transformed by the power of God. Now, we may be offended by the way people live their lives, and rightfully so, but remember what God can do. I mean, look at Paul himself. Look at that guy. He was the chief enemy of Jesus Christ. He was a murderer, a ravager of the church. And now he's transformed by the power of God to be the greatest living example of Christianity the world had ever known. And so God can take the very worst and turn him into the very best, right? And so we look at uh, the abject sin of people like Herod, Agrippa, and Bernice, and we look at the godlessness of Festus, and we're offended by that because they are uh, in their sin, an affront to God. But God says, yeah, they, the way they're living is they're going to have to face my judgment and my wrath, but I want them to be saved. I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I can take even that person and do something amazing and remarkable with their lives. So don't spend your life doling out condemnation or hoping for the destruction of your enemies. And also don't spend your life becoming more and more wrapped up in temporal goals. That's what had happened to the Sanhedrin. They were focused on earthly things. And more and more over time, it consumed their thinking and it consumed their behavior and it consumed their pursuit. Earthly things, earthly numbers, earthly success, earthly position. What, when that happens to God's people, they inevitably become antagonistic to the world around them. So we are not called to antagonism, but to evangelism. Why? 
Well, because salvation not only is what the Lord desires for people, he wants to save people out of sin and bring them into eternity with heaven, but salvation also solves the problem of the world. And a lot of times the church today gets distracted with earthly things because they think we need to solve this earthly problem. And if we're not careful, we get caught up in an earthly mindset to solve earthly problems. And we say, well, we're doing it for Jesus. We're doing it for, for, for spiritual reasons, but let's always think about earthly policies and earthly goals and earthly metrics to solve an earthly problem. And the truth is, while there is a lot of tangible compassion that we can do and be a part of, and of course, we're not saying we shouldn't feed people or anything like that, but what I am saying is that salvation is what ultimately solves the big problems in a life and solves the big problems in a society. Uh, and so we want to be sure that we are focused on spiritual things primarily as we are also meeting tangible needs of the world around us. Think about it this way. What would make Agrippa and Bernice better people, quote unquote? We would want better leaders. We want better leaders in our society, people of greater integrity, people of greater consistency, people who keep their word and have better goals, right? We all want that. What would make Bernice and Agrippa better people? A law against incest? They already had those on the books. They didn't care, right? Uh, what would make, what about Festus? What would make him a better ruler who is upholding a higher standard of justice? Campaign finance reform? No, right? I mean, that's not gonna do anything. That's not gonna make him a more impartial governor. But you take these kind of people and have their hearts washed by the blood of the lamb and then indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, well, that's gonna solve these problems. They're not gonna be in an incestuous relationship anymore. Their pride is going to be dealt with. There's not gonna be any more bribes or backroom deals when you know, taking innocent men and putting them through the court system. So that's what we're talking about. Verse 16, Festus talking, he said, I answered them that it is not the Roman custom to give someone up before the accused faces the accusers and has an opportunity for a defense against the charges. Festus throughout paints himself in the most positive light possible. And it reminds us that the average person that we talk to who's not a Christian, someone that we're trying to minister to or talk to about Jesus or explain uh, the gospel to, the average person really thinks that they're fine, that they're generally good. They'll, they'll think or say things like, well, sure, there are bad people out there, but I'm a good person, good-ish, right? And then the comparisons come out. Adolf Hitler, Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, those sorts of things. And so the average person out there is thinking, well, I'm not as bad as I could be, therefore I'm good, but that's not how it works. But look at how Festus was kind of behaving. He was naturally, number one, trying to talk himself up to this new important friend, Herod Agrippa. But frankly, he was lying to himself. He said, oh, I would never give up a Roman citizen. I wouldn't do that. I'm too good of a person. I'm too upright uh, of a ruler. In reality, we saw last time he was absolutely willing to give Paul up as a favor to the Jews. He just wasn't able to get it done in time before Paul said, hey, I, this is going sideways. I appeal to Caesar. His mention here of the Roman custom gives us a chance for another quick devotional thought. He said, this is the Roman custom, legality and you know, justice and all this kind of stuff. Okay, this is the way we do things. All right, so a devotional thought for us as Christians here tonight. What's our custom? You know, what's our mode of operation? 
that thing that we try to adhere to and frame the way we do things around. We have a lot of customs, but hopefully we can boil them down and boil down our Christian behavior to the word grace, right? Grace. We're saved by grace. The Bible says we're enriched by grace. We're told in 2 Corinthians 6 that we are to excel in grace, that it's to overflow us. Grace should be our custom. As we serve, as we speak, as we worship, is it full of God's grace? The way we do church, the way we preach, the way we interact, is it about and all of grace to the praise of the glory of God's grace? Uh, That is to be our custom. Verse 17, so when they had assembled here, I did not delay. The next day I took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought in. The man, Festus really had no idea who it was he had access to. It's kind of sad, right? What wouldn't we give for an afternoon with the Apostle Paul? You know, what, what wouldn't we give to have one recording of one of his sermons, you know, in full? And this guy, he's like, yeah, there's this guy. I mean, he really, really missed out here. At least Felix, in a couple passages earlier, he took a bunch of opportunities to talk to the apostle. He realized this guy, this guy knows some things. And yes, he wanted Paul to bribe him, but he also had this, we talked about this desire, this tiny little ember in his heart where he was, he wanted answers. He had questions. He knew Paul knew something. He knew Paul had some kind of answers and he took all of those opportunities for a couple of years talking to him. Not Festus. Festus is clueless. He's careless. He doesn't care at all about any of this stuff going on. Now, when we share the gospel with people, they're often coming into it with no idea who we really are as far as the eternal goes, right? They have no idea that what the Bible says is true, that we are spiritually alive and they are spiritually dead and that we know how to connect them with the Savior so that they may be made spiritually alive. They may see us instead as some unwelcome salesman or some sort of downer sent to make them feel bad about themselves, right? I'm sure you've had conversations like that. I'm sure you have people around the workplace maybe who have thought like, yeah, there's that, there's that Christian person and they just wanna tell me what I shouldn't be doing. They don't quite understand what our function actually is. In reality, we're more like the lifeguards who are swimming out to save them from drowning. And uh, they don't realize what danger they're in. Verse 18 says, the accuser stood up and brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting. Festus had assumptions and none of them were right. He didn't really know about the case, but he thought, oh, it must have to do with this, this, and this, right? He made an assumption. He had a predetermined attitude about Paul and about what he must be all about. What does the world assume about Christians today? I mean, that's a hard question to really have an answer to. And it doesn't matter whether it's fair or not, right? But it is a a question that maybe we should think about from time to time. What is the general feeling out in the culture around us when it comes to Christianity? Generally speaking, I'd say the assumptions aren't very good. I I, I don't see, for example, uh, television news uh, personalities running out to get the opinion of a Christian, right? There are a lot of people they pretend they want the opinions of this and that and that. And there's always uh, one missing person on the panel, like a born again Christian who wants to talk to you about Jesus Christ. And beyond that, you have all have interactions with people. The general assumptions about Christianity 
are usually, number one, not actually correct, and number two, uh, they're not necessarily positive. And so we can't control what the culture thinks about us because, for one thing, the enemy keeps people deceived in every era. I mean, so it's not that we need to have better PR as Christians, but this is the important part. Paul was not what Festus was expecting. He wasn't a troublemaker. He wasn't a maniac. He wasn't violent. He wasn't seeking his own goals. He thought, oh yeah, I, I bet I know what this, you know, this preacher that they're talking about is like. And then he met him and he thought, huh, you're not at all the stereotype that I had in my mind about what it means to be a religious person or what it means to be a Christian in this case. The Bible says that we are to be known by our love for the disciples, that we're to be known not for things like litigation or, uh, you know, or anger, but our ability to solve conflicts together in the church. We're supposed to be known for that. We're never told to be known for our anger or our rivalries or our politicization or, or anything like that but we're to be known for how we emulate the Savior, how we reflect the Messiah who's been revealed on the pages of Scripture, that we are known for our love for one another. And so sad that right now there just seems to be a a rash and a lot of really prominent or public feuds between churches or feuds between Christians suing each other in open court, fighting over some building, and this person suing this person, and this person suing this person, and it's gross. And the Bible says, stop doing that. Don't do that. You're supposed to be able to like judge angels in the future. You need to solve these problems internally. You should be known for grace. You should be known for your love for one another. You should be known for the ability to solve conflict and solve these problems, not going to the world's courts to drag the name of Jesus through the mud, to make these unfair assumptions that the devil has whispered into the ear of the secular culture true. That's not the deal at all. And so we wanna be known for our love for the disciples and known for the grace of God. Verse 19, instead they had some disagreements with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, a dead man, Paul claimed to be alive. Here's an amazing discovery as we listen in on this conversation. Festus didn't know who Jesus was. Now true, it's about 30 years since the cross and the empty grave, but still it surprised us, right? How, how could this guy actually not know about the Nazarene? Not have heard the stories, but he hadn't. The truth is there are a lot of people in the world who haven't heard the gospel and don't actually know who Jesus is. And not just far away in the 1040 window, right? Have you ever heard of missions organizations talk about the 1040 window? By one estimate, they talk about how 2 billion people live in the 1040 window and most of them, you know, don't know the gospel. But it's not just far away. Even here in our own community, as our culture becomes more secularized and less exposed to the gospel, there's more and more people who don't actually know who Jesus is, what he's about, what he said, or what he did. And we see here that Festus didn't realize there was even a difference between Judaism and Christianity. Now, he as an individual was particularly uninformed. The other people in the, in the room, they knew there was a difference. But there are some people that you are going to encounter who actually don't know even the basic ABCs of what Jesus Christ did, said, and who he is. And that's okay. We just need to be armed with that and realize that, okay, the average American that I go and talk to on the street might not actually know 
that Jesus rose again from the dead. They might have heard some things or seen some depiction of him, some blasphemous depiction in something, you know, but they might not know even the basic fundamentals of the Christian faith. And we don't need to assume that people know all of these things. Now, in addition, we notice that Festus didn't seem to care at all about the claim or idea that Jesus might actually be alive. He didn't even register. He's like, yeah, this guy, there's this dead guy, Jesus. He says he's alive. I don't know what he's even talking about. He wasn't interested at all. If you had, you know, somebody, it, it's so hard because on the one hand, if somebody said that to us, I don't even know who, who's somebody famous that died recently. Did somebody famous die recently? I don't know. They fake deaths on Twitter every five minutes, right? This person's dead. He's trending on Twitter. And they're like, no, he's not dead. He's still alive. He just hasn't been hired in anything in a long time, <laughs> right? But if someone came to you and said, Ronald Reagan is alive, we'd be like, mm, he's crazy. All right. But it's just interesting that it didn't even register with Festus. Didn't care at all. And it wasn't just Paul, though, who was talking about the resurrected Christ. Uh, and, and it was a lot of people. Paul talks about some of them in the book of Corinthians. He says, you know, Jesus Christ appeared to over 500 people at one time. And you can go talk to them right now. And so Festus, he's just checked out. He doesn't care about spiritual things. He's not interested when these things are brought up. And it just doesn't register. And this is giving us a window into the mentality of one type of unbeliever that we might encounter. You know, he's not a militant atheist. You know, he doesn't want to say, oh, I want to destroy all the Jews. I want to destroy all the Christians. He just doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. He's not thoughtful about spiritual things. He's just living his life. And yet he still needs to know the truth. God doesn't write Festus off and say, well, he doesn't care at all. He's not interested in all. And so we don't need to send the message of the gospel to him. And the Lord's still exposing him to Paul and exposing him to the truth of the gospel. Now, that disinterest doesn't make Paul change his message. So Festus doesn't register the resurrection at all. That's an idea of so out, outside of his thinking that he just passes right over it. Paul doesn't pivot and change what he starts talking about to make something more interesting to Festus, right? In fact, Paul is gonna double down on talk about how the resurrection is true and that it is the reason why he's where he is and that it is the hope of mankind. I mean, he digs deep into the resurrection in his talk. You see, the resurrection was always central and critical to the preaching of the apostles. They didn't talk to people about living their best lives now. They talked about how the Messiah is alive now. And because the, the, the resurrection not only validates everything Jesus said, it is the basis for the Christian faith. And it changes everything. Because you and I are going to walk out of the grave one day and step into eternity, everything about this life is different. The resurrection changes everything about your life and your future and reality. Now, your reality is not about this world and the things that you are experiencing in this world as much as it is what is going to happen in the next world. And now the Lord gives us this world to enjoy and he gives us opportunities and he gives us assignments. It's not that we just say, oh, well, I don't have to care about anything I do in this world. But once I saw it depicted this way, somebody had a crazy long rope, crazy long, right? And the, the, the very end of it, the half inch on the very end was painted red and the rest of it was white. He says, the resurrection makes it so that 
that this life on this earth is the red part. And now we know that the white part exists and it goes on for hundreds and hundreds of feet in the, in the illustration, right? And so doesn't that change everything I know about the red part, everything I think about it? Am I gonna really make sure that everything in, in my focus and in my, uh, and in my desire and in my pursuit is just about this tiny little half inch right here? Or am I gonna be thinking, what about the rest of this? Where am I gonna spend the rest of this rope? I mean, we talk about playing out the string. We talk about the end of our rope. There is no end of the rope for a human being because we're going to come out of the grave because we are gonna be eternal beings who live forever and ever in one of two locations. And Jesus says, I want, you, I want it to be with me. I want you to be in glory in life everlasting. I don't want you to go to eternal conscious torment separated from me forever and ever. And so the resurrection changes everything. We are gonna come out of the grave and step into eternity one day. And so everything about this life is different. And so it's always going to be focal to our sharing with people who need to hear that Jesus Christ loves them. And it's not just one guy's irrational claim. That's kind of the way Festus was presenting it in verse 19. There are immense proofs for the resurrection. Like I said, Paul references some of them in 1 Corinthians 15. As believers today, we can look at really wonderful books like The Case for Christ or Evidence That Demands a Verdict and see just how reliable and provable the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. And because Jesus Christ rose again, then everything he said is true and he is who he said he is. And because he rose again, you and I are going to rise again. And if you'd like, in the notes, I footnoted an article giving 23 different proofs for the resurrection that might be helpful for you. And so the resurrection should be the centerpiece of our evangelism and the centerpiece of our thinking as Christians living out our faith. Verse 20, since I was at a loss in a dispute over such things, I asked him if he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held by trial by the emperor, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I could send him to Caesar. So Festus was completely uninterested in what Paul might have to say. And yet God made sure that this man received the gospel message twice. I love that. Twice he's gonna get opportunity. And that demonstrates the incredible love of God, even for those who are ignoring him. As we witness for Jesus, listen, we can't make people care, but we can remember that God still cares for each of them and is not willing that any should perish. Here we see Festus is still bending the truth to make himself look good. He didn't hold on to Paul because he was at a loss. He held on to Paul because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. That's what we were told last time. He could have just thrown this case out. In fact, we saw something very similar back in Acts 18 in the city of Corinth, where they brought this case against the Christians and they said, we have a lot of things to say. And Paul's about to make his defense. And Gallio says, I don't care about any of this. This is about something about your religion. Get out of here. He just throws the case out. Festus could have done that, but he didn't because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. Verse 22, Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow you will hear him, he replied. So Festus doesn't really care. He's involved in all of this by default, but Agrippa is very interested. He had probably heard a lot more about Paul and Jesus of Nazareth. We see him very curious here. The book of Acts shows us a wide spectrum when it comes to unbelievers. You have on one far end of the Sadducees, they're full of violent hatred towards the gospel, right? Actively trying to cut down God's people. You have people out in the Gentile world sort of prejudiced against the Christians. 
You have people like Festus. They couldn't care less about any of this stuff. You have people like Agrippa, curious, but not really searching for spiritual things, but he's interested. Then you have people like the Ethiopian eunuch, the Philippian jailer. They're desperately seeking for some spiritual truth. And what do we see? We see see the same message for all, and we see God had a desire to save them all. He had a guy for the Ethiopian. Yeah, go, go talk to that dude. He's searching. He had a guy for Agrippa. He had a guy for Felix and Festus and Cornelius in the synagogue of the freedmen. He had guys. He says, go out, go out, go out, go out, go out. Go talk to these people. They're all over the spectrum of how interested they are or not, but go out and tell them the truth of salvation in Jesus Christ. And God sent these people out to bring the message to those in need, even when they didn't realize that they were in need. A few commentators pointed out that men like Festus and Agrippa would never step foot into a synagogue. They wouldn't be caught dead in some upper room Christian meeting. And so the Lord sent the message to them because the Savior draws all people to himself, the Bible says. And you are the magnet that he has decided to use to be part of that work of drawing. What grace we see here. God drawing despicable people to give them an opportunity to be saved. Herod was the kind of man who turned his troops on his own people during the first Jewish-Roman war. He did that. Things broke out, and he said, "Mm, I'm going to throw in with Rome, turned 2,000 of his troops on his own people. And yet God loved him, reaching out to him, giving him the opportunity to be witnessed to by the greatest evangelist of all time. Verse 23, so the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the military commanders and prominent men of the city. When Festus gave the command, Paul was brought in. This is a big deal, a huge event. Everyone's all decked out in their regalia and dress uniforms. They were all very impressed with themselves because unbelievers live for this world. Such a flamboyant display reminds us as Christians that our splendor is found in the next world. In Ephesians, we're told that we're going to be presented to the Lord in splendor. And so we need not chase this world's passing pomp. Don't worry about it. That's what the enemy offers. He even offered it to Christ himself in his temptation. But all the splendor of all the kingdoms of the world cannot compare to what is in store for those who will follow Christ to heaven. Don't be tricked and robbed of what could be yours by some uh, tarnished bauble of this world. And the comparison of this verse couldn't be more dramatic. All the crowns and robes and fine attire and gold and glimmering jewels. And then there's the hunched and shackled preacher in some worn out tunic. But of all the people in the scene, one of them had an address in the New Jerusalem where the streets are paved with gold. Who do you wanna be in the scene? It's easy to make that choice. Verse 24, then Festus said, King Agrippa, all the men present with us, you see this man, the whole Jewish community has appealed to me concerning him, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should not live any longer. I found that he had not done anything deserving of death, but when, he set him, uh, but when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. This isn't a trial. No, Paul is here on display for their entertainment. He's like one of P.T. Barnum's freaks. Now you are on display. Paul says as much in his letter to the Corinthians. You're a Jesus freak, right? And people are looking at you, some of them with disdain, some of them with disgust, some of them with curiosity, some with total misunderstanding, but they're looking. And when they look at you, you have the chance to reflect the confounding grace of Jesus Christ and reveal his truth to them. That's what Paul's gonna do. Now, Festus knew Paul was innocent, but he feared the crowd, right? He didn't want unrest in his jurisdiction. 
He didn't want to make the hard decision to let an innocent man go free. It's not always easy for those we talk to about the gospel to forsake their old life, to forsake what they thought they knew, maybe even forsake father and mother and culture for Christ. As we preach, we wanna offer our assistance to help these people and walk with them into a life of faith. Before we move on to the closing verses, one thought, they're essentially admitting here that Paul is being treated unfairly. He says, yeah, the dude's innocent. What are we gonna do? We gotta, we gotta, we gotta find a reason to charge him with something. The courts had completely let Paul down. Despite his innocence, despite his rights as a citizen, despite what should have been happening. Now, generally speaking, the Christian community right now feels that things are becoming more unfair, more unjust toward us. We feel like our rights are being violated in all sorts of ways. That may be true. It is true in certain ways, but you know what? It's nothing new. We shouldn't be surprised, nor should we count on courts to make things right. We can celebrate and be grateful when a case goes our way, as it were, but we shouldn't expect it because as Acts shows us many times over, we can't expect unsaved men to do what's right, no matter what the precedent or the law in the books is, right? So it's nothing new that Christians are treated unfairly and we don't put our hope in courts. We don't put our hope in man-made justice systems. Our hope is in our Lord. Verse 26, I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this examination is over, I might have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. Festus had to send a report. So now he's in the uncomfortable position of having to justify his less than ethical handling of the case. Unbelievers around us often feel justified for their actions. Festus didn't want to hurt Paul, but he did want to help himself. And when push came to shove, he picked self over what was right. And we see something else here. All these important people, all these great rulers, shouldn't they have been able to solve this little issue of a simple court case? And yet we see them, they're paralyzed because all of them were seeking their own benefit. This is why there's gridlock in government, never-ending lawsuits in every corner of society. All the might and wisdom of men can't actually fix the broken parts of the world, but Christ can, and only he can. As you and I go out into the world where God has scattered us, you may find yourself talking to someone who has a Sadducee mentality or a Festus mentality or Agrippa or the Philippian jailer, the Ethiopian eunuch. You may find yourself interacting with someone honorable or someone despicable someone searching for God, someone who hates God, someone who doesn't care either way. Our Lord's desire for them is the same. He's not willing that any should perish. It's the same desire he had for you and for me and for Saul of Tarsus. Jesus said, when he's lifted up, he draws all men to himself. And so whoever we encounter, our message is meant to be the same. Not that we never come at the truth of the gospel from an angle that makes more sense to someone in a particular situation once we understand their perspective, but the message is always the same, that sin separates man from God. And so God sent Jesus Christ, God in human flesh to live, die, and most importantly, rise again. And that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. As we go about preaching, some may see you as a curiosity. Some may see you as a complication. Some people will be full of conceit or corruption. They may just be clueless. They may think that they're operating by some custom or code that makes them better than Ted Bundy or some other boogeyman in their mind. But we can cut through all of that and present the truth in love, knowing that God loves them and wants them to be saved. 
And one just final thought, thought as we close. This audience gathered to hear Paul was really a big deal. Maybe wasn't a more significant group of people gathered together in the book of Acts. We've got a king, a governor, military commanders, a bunch of prominent leaders. It's an incredible opportunity. Wouldn't we love for these sorts of leaders in our nation to have a true gospel presentation given to them? Of course we would. We weren't told how many of them ultimately gave their lives to Christ. I'm sure some of them did. The question is this, was Paul's two-year imprisonment worth it? As readers, we think so. We're so glad he gets to talk to these guys. We're so glad that this is part of the book of Acts. But what did Paul have to do to get there? He had to sit in a prison for two years. We're called to live sacrifice. And when we are called to live it out ourselves, it's, it's sometimes harder to accept. But sometimes the Bible shows that sacrifice will put us into a position to have incredible opportunities that we might not be able to have otherwise. Eric Little the famous runner. He gave up the chance to run in his favored race in the 1924 Olympics because it was his conviction not to run on a Sunday. We don't need to argue about that right now. That was his conviction. But that sacrifice, giving up that opportunity, led to an incredible testimony that has lasted decades and decades and decades. They're making movies about it. They're writing books about it. It's an incredible opportunity for him to preach the gospel through that sacrifice. Was his long testimony worth trading a gold medal? Of course. We think, yeah, who cares about a gold medal? Nobody cares about a 1924 gold medal. Eric Little did at some point. He trained, he dedicated his life to running, dedicated himself to to this effort. But he said, you know what? I'll sacrifice that for the sake of my Christian witness. How about Bethany Hamilton? She's had really great opportunities to proclaim the name of Jesus. Why? Because a shark bit off her arm. Are the opportunities that she's had to proclaim the name of Jesus and the gospel of grace, is it worth her arm? We all think yes. I don't know if I think that when I get in the ocean, right? Jesus might come to us and say, is it worth your arm? Is it worth your arm for but what I want to give you an opportunity to do, we look at these individuals and we say, yes, the, the two years in jail is worth it. The giving up of a gold medal, of course it is worth it. The giving up of your arm is worth it. Who needs an arm when you have heaven? You'll be restored one day in a resurrection body. Look, it's not that we're looking for pomp or greatness for ourselves. It's not that, well, I need to s- sit in a room that has the most important people in it. The end goal isn't to be in the most impressive room. But it is clear that sometimes a special work of God is accomplished after we follow him through a path of sacrifice. That's the way he's gonna lead us sometimes. And we have to trust that's what what is waiting on the other side of the resurrection is anything worth anything that we have to give up on this side, amen?